We're coming off the hottest day of the year, the day after Labor Day. And the second hottest day of the year was the day after Memorial Day. So much for summer beginning and ending on the holidays. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. Some news was breaking Tuesday. Let's talk about it. Ohio's Democrats are ending their fight to fix the state's gerrymandered congressional districts, a battle that was back before an Ohio Supreme Court that is much friendlier to Republicans these days. Lisa, what's the thinking? So the plaintiffs in these lawsuits versus the Ohio Supreme Court are asking that their cases be dismissed over illegally gerrymandered maps because If this is granted, the current congressional maps would stay in place for the 2024 election, despite being ruled unconstitutional. But their fear is now that dissenting Republican Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor has retired. They're worried that the new maps will be even worse in her absence and go sail right through the Supreme Court. League of Women Voters Jen Miller says lawsuits are expensive and victory is uncertain. They say it's better to pivot their energies to independent commission ballot measures. Attorney Don McTighe, who represents several of the plaintiffs, he said the same thing. He says the current map is actually a partial victory um, than the previous version that was also ruled illegal because Democrats won five of 15 congressional seats. There was a sweep in three competitive districts that, uh, you know, and they expected the GOP to take 13 of 15 seats. So they did kind of gain two seats. ACLU of Ohio Freed Levinson says there's no desire for another round of map making given the recent history. And she said, if the current maps are used, they must still be redone after the 2024 election anyway. Yeah. And look, this fighting over this is fighting over a symptom and not the disease. The disease is that our system for redrawing the maps failed. None of the elected officials charged with doing it the right way lived up to their constitutional duties. So if that's what happens, you need to change the Constitution again to get those knuckleheads out of there and put people in that will follow the Constitution. That's what the former Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor is working on. She's leading that effort. Fighting for another set of two-year maps would be kind of pointless and and divert a lot of energy. And like you said, Lisa, they could end up losing seats because this Supreme Court in no way represents the law and the people. It represents the Republican Party. And I didn't know this. They you know, the reason that the maps do have to be redone next year is because it, only one party supported The Ohio Constitution mandates that any maps must be supported by both Republicans and Democrats, which was not the case here. The Democrats were overruled uh, continuously over and over and over again. I think it was five maps we got altogether. Yeah, but I also think that will happen. Look, the first round where they put the amendment in to change the Constitution and remove the elected officials got kicked back by Dave Yost rightfully because it was confusing as all get out. They've resubmitted their their new model yesterday. And even if Yost finds that confusing, they'll eventually get it right. Next November, it's very likely we'll all get to vote on a new way of drawing maps that removes all the power-hungry slime that didn't do their job. I mean, think about it. You know, the House Speaker, the Senate President, the Governor, the Secretary of State, the Auditor, all failed to do the job. There were two Democrats on this thing, but they were completely outnumbered. And not only did they violate the Constitution. They violated their oath to the Constitution 
they refuse to follow the orders of the Supreme Court. I mean, this is one of the most amazing moments in Ohio history where elected officials fail to follow the Constitution. And there's no ramification, except if we vote next November to throw them off of this thing and get real people to do it. I wonder what Republicans are thinking right now. You know, they probably think that they've won a victory here. But, you know, Frank LaRose also imposed, you know, he imposed a September 22nd deadline to get those maps done. They weren't even going to meet until the 13th. So that was pretty much an impossible task. History will be unkind to these guys because of I can't remember another time where constitutional officers failed to adhere to the Constitution. This It's still remarkable to me, and they're lucky they weren't held in contempt and put in jail. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All eyes in the abortion debate in Ohio are on the November ballot when voters will consider a constitutional amendment to legalize it. But reporter Laura Hancock has a story that says the amendment will not end the battling. She identifies five areas that are likely to be the focus of conservative lawmakers and lawsuits. Laura, what are they? Yeah, I did not realize that this was coming down the pike. I thought if the people speak, then that's what it's going to be. And we'll all agree that even if some people don't like it, that this is the law of the land. But no, we're not going to have all the clarity, probably. So and if you look to other states who have passed abortion amendments and legal made sure that abortion is legal in their state, these things just keep coming. So we're talking about reviewing dozens of abortion laws that the legislature has passed since the 1980s from a 24-hour waiting period to whether parents need consent for a minor's abortion. And the long-term strategy would be to chip away at abortion access through the courts and legislation so that even though this amendment says that Ohioans can have abortions, it's such a high level that it's not getting into the nitty gritty details generally allows abortion until fetal viability around 22 to 24 weeks. And then after viability, if the professional judgment is says that it's necessary for a woman's life or health. So there's a lot of things you could do with that. Still, you could still have a parental consent. You could still say that they need transfer agreements between these clinics and hospitals. So these are things that are going to be continued to be fought about. Yeah. The only thing I don't know when I read this is what the taste will be in the courts to allow it. Uh, this is going to this amendment will probably win by a landslide based on everything we know about how Ohio feels about abortion. And if you're an elected judge, whether you're a local judge, an appellate judge, a Supreme Court justice, you know that the voters are going to be paying attention to what you do. And if the overwhelming majority of voters say, we want this, are you really going to want when you're facing reelection to be the one that's cutting away at it unfairly? This is all cheap tactics to try and whittle away at what the voters will likely enshrine. That's a that's a bad move when you work against the voters. We saw that happen in issue one. So I'm not sure the courts will be so willing to go along with the radically gerrymandered legislature, which doesn't really care what the voters think. It might be interesting where they choose to bring these lawsuits. Um, and I, we've said on this podcast over and over again that it does feel like sometimes Ohio's elected officials are more beholden to party than to the people. So and obviously there are some. I mean, judges are supposed to be impartial and and look at the law and what it says, but they also run on a ticket, you know, or not ticket. They run as Republican or Democrat. So 
Yeah, but that, but the justices run statewide, and if you're one of the justices that whittles away what the voters have enshrined, that could come back to haunt you. The voters good. in Ohio are not stupid. They do pay attention to what they think is unfair. Look, that's one of the big reasons issue one went down, including in usually Republican areas, is because it violated the sense of fair play. If mm-hmm. Supreme Court justices start violating that sense of fair play, that's going to bite them. And they all do want to survive. They don't want to lose their jobs. And the proposed amendment, it does explicitly prohibit the state from directly or indirectly burdening, penalizing, interfering and prohibiting anyone from getting an abortion. So you could make an argument that any law that infringes on the right is doing that. That said, I don't think we're going to see minors having abortions without parental consent. It'll be interesting to see if they whittle away at the constitutional right involving abortion when the Second Amendment has become supreme. You can't whittle away at it at all. So the you'd have a, a dichotomy there. Good story. I wonder if they'll oh, go ahead, Lisa. No, I was just gonna say if they I wonder if they're gonna lean on the current thinking that this bill actually is a backdoor way of allowing kids to get uh, gender affirmation treatment. Yeah, I mean, they're going to campaign on that, but I don't think that's going to work in Ohio. I think people pretty much made up their minds. If that went to the courts, I think the courts would look at what was the intent. And pretty much everybody's saying that's not the intent. What's interesting is when you bring up the parents' rights, right? Like that's become a dog whistle, that this is an anti-parents' rights amendment, because they're saying, oh, your your kid's going to be able to do all this without your consent. But that's not the intention of the law. So it's like the the ant the anti amendment folks are and the people who are anti abortion are kind of trying to say, look how far this goes, but it, it won't necessarily go that far. Like they're trying to make it more extreme than it actually is. Laura's story is is deep and thorough. Mm-hmm. It's worth taking the time. You can read it on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Public school districts challenging Ohio's big expansion of its school voucher program held a press conference to reiterate their claims and talk about what they see as a big increase in financial harm to public schools in the latest state budget. Courtney, what's their point? Yeah, so here, you know, it's important to know that we're in the midst in Ohio here of a multi-year plan to overhaul our public school funding. It's a plan that ramps up spending over six years. We're, we're two years into it. And in June, the legislature decided to fund the year three and year four. And this bumps up funding over that time from about $8 billion for public schools to $10 billion. This was a bipartisan plan. The architects of it included school funding experts. And here's where the issue comes in, right? So this year, when the General Assembly was funding year three and four of that plan, they simultaneously increased the state's largest voucher system for private schools, bumped it up to by about $800 per student for elementary students, and bumped it up, you know, substantially about $1,000 for high schoolers. And this public schools nonprofit advocacy group, the Ohio Coalition for Equity and Ad- Ad- Adequacy of School Funding, they're in the midst of suing the state over its private school voucher program, but they're really pointing at how the state has ramped up this voucher spending at the same time it's trying to fund and ramped up the public school spending. And basically, when this group came out to this press conference yesterday, they said, look, we don't need basically to wait 
the full six years to fund the the public school plan, we've got the money right here. The legislature plowed it into private school vouchers. The clearly the legislature is looking to harm public schools with what they're doing. What surprised me about this press conference is I didn't really find anything new. These are all the allegations that have been made in the lawsuit. They talked about the intimidation tactic by Dave Yost and the auditor to try and find out how they're paying for this lawsuit or whatever it is. But but they just it seems like they wanted to put the issue back in front of people that there's not really a development that they have. Yeah, you know, reading it, it kind of struck me that way, too. But I mean, that's common in in government groups, right? They want to keep their message out in front. They want folks to stay tuned to their arguments and what they have to say here. And, you know, as part of this, we heard from the president of the Ohio Education Association, Scott DeMauro, and he really hammered home, like you said, that point, the tax dollars going to private school vouchers come from the same line item in the budget that funds public schools, DeMauro told us. And kind of the point of that line was that he, he says the legislature doesn't want us to know how much an education funding is really going to educate a small portion of Ohio students via private schools versus the funding that, that, that they want to see for the public system here. He, he said... You know, maybe, basically, they're trying to conceal that. Maybe it's the idea that the budget gets passed in June when summer's out and nobody's thinking about schools. And now that we're post Labor Day and schools in full session, they figure they can grab parents' attention. It certainly worked. We're talking about it on Today in Ohio. A woman who was unfairly locked up by an Ohio judge in a case so egregious that the judge's law license was revoked for a year cannot get damages from the judge. Lisa, this seems like a travesty to me. Why not? Yeah, this is a ruling handed down from the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Let me give you some background on this case first. There was a 2021 case in Seneca County Municipal Court, and the judge there, Mark Rep, accused a courtroom spectator, Alexandria Orta, of being stoned at a hearing for her boyfriend. He ordered a drug test right there from the bench, Order refused and was given a 10-day jail sentence for contempt. The charges were reversed the next day on arguments from both prosecutors and defense attorneys that what Rep did violated state and federal constitutions. Orta sued. The Ohio Supreme Court suspended Rep's law license for a year, and then they issued a written opinion in which they said that Rep was selfish, dishonest, arrogant, and this was an unwarranted conduct. So, The Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the contempt charge was actually traditional judicial act. They're entitled to judicial immunity that shields them against civil rights claims. And they say that they, in the ruling, that they realize there's no comfort or vindication for Orta, but society benefits when judges can decide the law without concern for personal consequences, even if it's unfair or unjust on occasion. All right. Well, if you want to say that the judge doesn't have a personal liability because of the immunity, then the county should make good or the state should make good. Somebody needs to make good for taking away this woman's liberty for a day. Uh, I understand the logic of the ruling, but but there's still an institution that damaged her. When somebody gets sentenced to prison on false charges, they always come out and get compensation from the state if they've been wrongfully convicted. I don't know why there's not a similar thing here. Like, I get it's just one day, but still, you're losing your liberty to a monstrous judge for a day. There ought to be some recompense. 
You are listening to Today in Ohio. Everyday Ohioans say they are weary of the culture wars, but Ohio's politicians don't seem to be getting the message. J.D. Vance reopened a kind of quiet battleground in the wars this week. What is it, Laura? Yeah, I thought we were done talking about masks and and the controversy over that, which had been controversial since the beginning of COVID. But J.D. Vance doesn't want any government forcing anyone to wear masks no matter where they are. He's calling this the Freedom to Breathe Act. It would block the federal government from reimposing mask mandates to prevent the spread of the coronavirus and also basically tell private systems that they can't tell people what to do either. Air carriers, transit authorities, educational institution. They, he says you can't refuse to serve people who don't wear masks. I'm not entirely sure how you could do that since they'd be independent entities. But uh, J.D. Vance thinks that he could not that this is going to go anywhere in um in the no, legislature. no, it's it's not going to go anywhere, but it's part of a trend. You've seen it elsewhere. Uh, you know, Rand Paul was doing it, too, where the coronavirus is spreading again. We've had eight weeks in Ohio where the numbers are going up. You're seeing it nationally. Health officials are trying to figure out what's the best way to go after three years of learning lessons from the pandemic, trying to do the right thing to keep people safe. And then you've got people like J.D. Vance that are just trying to politically capitalize on it by playing the culture war card. It's it's pathetic. It's embarrassing that he's from Ohio. This is not the way a civilized country should behave. You should figure out what's the best thing here. Schools are struggling with, with this right now. There are kids that are dropping. You're, I'm hearing about it. There are schools all over Cuyahoga County where the kids have it. I've been visiting somebody in a medical facility in the past week where you're required to wear a mask because there's a fear they're immunocompromised. And so Mm -hmm. you don't want to carry it in and give it to people that are immunocompromised. And then we have this horse's ass out there on his megaphone saying, trying to fire up his base. Right. And this is not the first time he's done this. Remember, his first bill in the Senate was to make English the nation's official language. He also introduced legislation that would prohibit gender affirming care for minors. There's a third bill that would require non-immigrant visa recipients to deposit $5,000 to $15,000 in a holding account in case they overstayed their welcome illegally. So yeah, it does feel like he's catering to a base. And he put out a, a news release about this mask law uh, bill and said that the mask mandates failed to control the spread of respiratory viruses, violated basic bodily freedom and set our fellow citizens against one another. It's like, come on. The idea that the masks don't offer protection, he's out of his mind. Wouldn't it be nice if we had elected leaders who noticing that this thing's spreading again and knowing what we've learned just just advise people to be calm and to use their heads, to wear masks if appropriate, and to think about others. Wouldn't it be nice to have that instead of thinking some, about others? Yes, yes, that would be lovely. Somebody just screaming again and 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 hollering about it. I a reader sent me a note last night, upset about the pol- politicization of the the coronavirus again instead of a, a sober approach to it, and asked if we would collect stories from people who lost. people family and, re- and friends to this, to remind people that this was a horrifying disease for, for many. And, and I don't think there's anybody that I know that hasn't been touched by it in some way. So we're going to do that. We're going to ask people now that some time has passed to reflect on those they've lost, just as a reminder of the damage this thing can do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
A bunch of law enforcement honchos were in Cleveland Tuesday to announce results of their efforts to reduce crime in Cleveland. Hard to imagine anybody claiming success against crime in Cleveland this year. But Courtney, what did they have to say? Yeah, this this big announcement yesterday, it included our hometown former U.S. attorney, now ATF director Steve Dettelbach. He wrote into a town to, you know, announce a blitz of federal law enforcement activity in recent days. They went after illegal guns was kind of the focus. There were some drugs involved, too. And this this blitz, it, it really kind of unfolded over over recent days and was part of like a three month operation. It resulted in in 60 arrests and and it was aimed at, at disrupt, disrupting illegal gun dealing. Federal agents here in Cleveland seized 240 guns total over the summer. 46 of them were used in over 100 shootings and 11 homicides. 17 of the weapons were ghost guns without serial numbers. One gun alone was used in 14 shootings. Now, you expect law enforcement to be doing this, right? You expect them to be out on the street grabbing things and going after illegal guns. But really kind of the officials yesterday used this as an opportunity to, to demonstrate that this kind of push is, is kind of what a precursor would be to a planned crime gun intelligence center here in Cleveland. We received word about this planned intelligence center months ago, but officials yesterday seemed to use this this recent blitz to kind of show what using this kind of intelligence to go after guns and trace them back to violent crimes can do and, and really how to get them off the street more effectively using data and their methods. We've talked a lot about access to guns, easy access to guns in Cleveland. The alarming part of this story was the number of people that are selling them, uh, selling a lot of them, and where they're selling them, out in the open, Walmart parking lots, metro parks. Um, You get a clear picture of the avenue that guns are getting into the hands of people that shouldn't have them. Not selling for a huge amount of money. I think the one guy, how many did he sell? And he got $8,000 total. It was a couple of dozen or something, right? Yeah, there was a lot. And to your point, there was one guy telling the federal undercover federal agent he was selling them to, I don't care what you do with with these guns. Go go take out whoever you want. Just leave my name out of it. So the brazenness. The the thing that was a little bit weird is is that they kept buying guns from these guys. You would think after you bought the first one, you could lock them up, but they apparently just kept going to get a huge number. Maybe the number means they serve a longer sentence and come off the street. You're listening to today in Ohio. Is the northern half of Ohio getting any closer to ending its record-breaking period without a U.S. attorney, Laura? Yes, we are. And it's the interim acting uh, U.S. attorney right now who's actually part of that press conference that Courtney was just talking about. So we could be finally having someone. This is the Senate Judiciary Committee. Set, they're set to review the qualifications of Becky Letzko. She's Joe Biden's nominee for U.S. Attorney of Northern Ohio. And if the committee decides in favor of her, the full Senate will vote on whether to approve her nomination. There's also a bunch of other judges on the committee's agenda. This is the longest stretch. The office is 166 years has ever had without a Senate confirmed leader. And she's been the interim since um, the judges in the Northern District actually appointed her. That was a rare rare move. She's been a federal prosecutor since 2005 and served a two-year term as a Hinckley Township trustee from 2018 to 2020. 
What's amazing is, is Joe Biden is nearing the end of his third year in office, and we still don't have a U.S. attorney. But if he loses next year, we'll have go through this all over again. It's just a, it's been pathetic how long we've gone, and I think it's made a difference in the the prosecutorial aggressiveness of this office. Hopefully, she'll be in place soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, not if J.D. Vance has anything to do with it. <laughs> Not that he's a member of the committee, but he said he would try to install all of Biden's announce, uh, nominees for U.S. attorney. And, you know, I just want to point out, you know, watching the press conference yesterday, she was a big, a big voice in that press conference. You want a permanent leader there to really come out with those big indictments, really, you know, take the lead, grab the bull by the horns. And she seemed to be doing that somewhat yesterday. So maybe she's feeling a little confident in the long term nature of her position. Yeah. And to be fair, they tried to appoint Marissa Darden, confirmed by the Senate, never stepped foot in the office, and she resigned. We're not entirely sure why, but there was an AP story uh, saying that she had partied on a boat with a convicted U.S. DEA agent. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland police union officials surely are snickering about this. Courtney, why did Cleveland's public safety director get a ticket from a suburban police department recently? Yeah, Kerry Howard. He's the public safety director. He was driving a city vehicle. He was out driving in Orange Village in the middle of the night last week. And it was Wednesday. It was a bit after midnight. Orange police pulled Howard over at Lander Road and they cited him with failure to yield. Cowards facing a $165 fine. Orange police said they didn't have a police report. Uh, and, and we asked to speak to Howard about this. And it sounds like the city never got back to us there. I, I'm curious about why Carrie Howard was pulled over. Uh, you know, a little village, middle of the night. Um, I'm, I'm curious about yeah, the circumstances yeah. there. It's, when you're public safety director, you really shouldn't run stop signs and you shouldn't speed. It's just not right for your image, <laughs> especially when you are an aggressive. He's aggressive in pursuing misbehavior by Cleveland police officers, which they hate. The unions can't stand them. They keep trying to get them thrown out. You don't want to give them the ammunition to say, look at him. He doesn't even follow the traffic laws of our neighboring neighboring suburbs. It's a foolish thing to do. And I'm sure he really regrets it. Yeah. And in the city, the, the city didn't really tell us why he was in orange in the middle of the night, um, driving a city vehicle, but they talked about how it's important for him to be out in the neighborhoods. And the Bibb administration was basically saying he, he's a hard worker and, and he's out taking care of things whenever they occur. I'm curious what work would would take the public safety director who's not a super hands-on kind of a position out to Orange Village in the middle of the night. That, that's kind of interesting to me. I don't know, but in my time here, he's been one of the best public safety directors. Um, we haven't had a lot that I have thought have done a great job, but he's he's been a pretty good pretty good at it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Almost anybody who watched the documentary on Woody Allen a while back likely came away creeped out, believing the allegations that Mia Farrow made against him involving sex abuse of a child. The controversy turned a lot of people away from Allen's movies. So, Lisa, what is the Cleveland Cinematheque thinking in having a festival of early Woody Allen movies? Well, its director, John Ewing, says... 
really it's necessary to separate the art from the artist in this point. This Woody Allen film series is called Early Funny Woody. It's featuring six films. They're going to be shown between September 17th and October 21st. He says... How can we deny ourselves the pleasure of great films because a creator isn't morally spotless? He says his focus is on the films. And of course, this all is against the backdrop of longstanding allegations that Alan sexually abused his adoptive daughter, Dylan Farrow, at the age of seven. He was never charged, although the Connecticut state attorney did find probable cause. And as you mentioned, Chris, a 2021 uh, HBO doc, Alan V. Farrow, presented compelling evidence that he did. But Ewing said he's used to controversy and he's actually retiring next year. So he says uh, nobody else in the USA is showing his films. He says any ill will that is generated by this film festival will be mitigated by his impending retirement. Um, the the, The six movies that they're showing are Take the Money and Run, Bananas, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, Sleeper, Love and Death, and Annie Hall, but not Manhattan. That's the movie where Woody Allen plays a 42-year-old comedy writer dating a teen girl who is played by uh, Marissa Hemingway. Yeah, I look, I was a Woody Allen fan for most of my adult life. Those movies that, that are being played are all hilarious, but looking at them now, it, you look at them through a completely different prism. He's a creep. I mean, I, I don't want to watch him. I don't want to watch his movies And it was interesting that the story compared it to Roman Polanski in Chinatown. There is a difference, Mm. though. I mean, Roman Polanski makes a a kind of a cameo in Chinatown, but it's not him. Woody Allen movies, he stars in them. He writes them. Mm -hmm. He directs them. They are him. And man, I loved Manhattan when it came out. But after all this stuff came up, it completely changes your outlook. It's so creepy to watch. I'm just surprised they're doing it. I... I, you know, I cannot imagine going to see any of the movies at the Cinematheque knowing now what we know about Woody Allen. Yes, but Ewing is, you know, he's, I think he's taking a big stance here. I mean, they've played Birth of a Nation. Most pay, people won't play that movie. It's basically a Ku Klux Klan manifesto. But, you know, their, you know, art is um, is conflict a lot of times. It, it's an interesting debate is, is does, does damaging information about the artist change the art or is the art standalone? And that's what he's trying to point out. All I know is I was a lifelong Woody Allen fan. I wouldn't be caught dead in the theater. I imagine there are quite a few others that feel the same way. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Wednesday episode. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. We'll be back Thursday. <laughs>